Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am speaking with Dr. Jackie Duncan. Dr. Duncan is the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Foundation Fighting Blindness. She is a practicing ophthalmologist and a professor of clinical ophthalmology at UCSF. Dr. Duncan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm looking forward to this conversation um, for, for a number of reasons, and we'll dive into those as we, as, uh, we progress through the uh, conversation. But I was hoping we could start with just a little bit of a, a background, a little bio sketch um, of you and how you came to the field of ophthalmology and maybe specifically into the area of retinal disease. Sure. Well, I'm happy to be able to talk with you today and thank you for um, reaching out. So I um, initially wasn't even sure that I wanted to go into medicine, but um, over the, I always loved biology. And um, during the course of my um, biology training uh, and degree, I realized that it was a really great opportunity to not only love biology, but also to use it in a way that can help people by um, becoming a a physician, by becoming a doctor and applying to medical school. So that is the path I chose. And also during medical school, didn't really know what an ophthalmologist did or that, you know, was interested in ophthalmology. But during the course of my medical school training, I was fortunate to take some classes or rotations where I spent time um, seeing patients um, with eye problems in the ophthalmology clinic, which made me interested in ophthalmology. And I like that better than any of the other specialties because it was a combination of surgery and medicine and you could take care of patients with all different uh, sorts of ages and backgrounds um, and in a way that was very meaningful to them in a way you know that you could help them with a function that really was so important for their ability to interact with the world and have that you know meaningful quality of life. So pursued ophthalmology and during ophthalmology um, had always kind of been interested in retina because the retina is the place where vision really begins. Um, the photoreceptor vision cells are the cells that respond to light and signal uh, information to your brain that allows you to know you've seen something uh, and to process it into an image that your brain can understand. So it all begins uh, with the rods and the cones. And, and that was sort of an area that I was always interested in. Um, I chose to pursue additional fellowship training after my residency um, in retinal disease. Um, And during that time, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I was really fortunate to work with Dr. Um, Sam Jacobson, who's an expert in inherited retinal degenerations, um, as well as Dr. Stuart Fine, who is an expert in age-related macular degeneration. And so during the time uh, I spent with Dr. Jacobson, I was able to work with many patients who had inherited retinal degenerations, which I, I had not had that much exposure to during my previous training, given that they're relatively uncommon conditions. Um, And that's where I really decided this was an area I really wanted to spend a large chunk of my career uh, because patients with inherited retinal degenerations have, by their very nature, uh, inherited a genetic change that causes their vision cells not to function properly and not to survive. And they, you know, for a ne- there's a number of different ways that can manifest and there's a number of different ages this can affect people, um, but you know, they didn't do anything to bring this on and, and we didn't at that time uh, really have any treatments to offer to them. So um, I felt like it was a really meaningful um, 
area of ophthalmology to pursue. So since that time, I returned to the University of California, San Francisco um, to pursue research in that area, as well as to take care of patients with inherited retinal degenerations. Does that answer your question? That answers my question. It, open, it opens <laughs> okay. up a lot of other questions. Okay. So, uh, but before I dive into some of those, um, there was a note I had here, and I did mm-hmm. uh, I did confirm this with you before we started recording, just to make sure that um, this wasn't something we wrote down incorrectly. But uh, your profile says that you love dog walks and as well as eye imaging with advanced technology. Those are two mm-hmm. very different things. Um, maybe before we talk about some of the the research you're alluding to, do you mind just commenting? on that, the origin of that and, and uh, what form that takes. Sure. Well, they're two, they are not really related to one another, but yeah, um, we adopted a dog uh, about 10 years ago uh, because my daughter, who at the time was eight, um, was really afraid of dogs. And so we rescued this little um, multi-poodle, multi-poo dog um, whose name is Peanut. Um, And I had never had a dog before, but uh, he is just such a joy. I mean, he's just taught me a lot about like, what's really important in life. Dogs really appreciate, you know, eating, sleeping, having fun and exercising and just being around people that they care about. So those are all, they just keep those priorities front and center all the time. And they don't let a lot of other things get in the way. So my dog has taught me a lot about what really matters um, and has also given me a lot of opportunities to get outside and exercise in a regular way. Um, It just brings, he gives a lot more than, than he takes. So he's just a real joy. So the, so the, the dog, it makes a lot of sense to me. I have two, uh, two small puppies who, um, you know, they, it's the same thing, you know, they, they, uh, they give a lot more than they take. And, uh, whenever you're a a very busy, ambitious person, which, um, certainly your uh, accomplishments seem to say of you having that, uh, having that reminder at home all the time about, you know, how to slow down and and enjoy Mm -hmm. things is probably very helpful. Now, the, how about the, the eye imaging side of things? So this is, again, this is something in your profile that um, you are very uh, interested and passionate about. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So as I started my career, I was working with a basic scientist named Matt LaVale, who had developed a number of animal models um, of the same kind of diseases I was seeing in the clinic. And um, the best way to understand how the vision cells are being affected in those diseases was to, you know, look under a microscope um, to really study the ways the photoreceptors were being affected. And we aren't really as, as capable of doing that in people because people are still using their eyes um, and to see things. And so uh, since I began my career really around the year 2000, there have really been a number of incredible um, advancements in our ability to study the retina in the eyes of living patients. And those include things like optical coherence tomography, which gives us sort of a cross-section or side view of the different retinal layers and including the photoreceptors. And also after sort of starting my career here, um, I went to a research meeting in 2005 where I met a scientist that had just come to UC Berkeley, uh, which is not far at all from where I practice at UCSF, um, that had really developed and was interested in adapting technology that was really originally developed for astronomy um, to help correct for irregularities in the atmosphere that prevent us from seeing 
stars and distant galaxies with clarity. Um, so the same kind of technology is called adaptive optics. And uh, my colleague, Austin Warda at UC Berkeley, um, adapted that approach with some other experts in the field, David Williams at University of Rochester, to uh, use that very same approach to correct for little irregularities in the cornea and lens that prevent people like me from seeing the retinal cells with clarity. So the uh, resolution of the images is improved by using adaptive optics. Again, the same technique that was developed originally for astronomy, um, by pointing that toward the retina, we can really get very clear images of the cones and sometimes the rods. And um, so this was a really wonderful novel development that um, just begun to be applied to people with retinal conditions in about the year 2005 when I met Dr. Warda, who came to UC Berkeley around that time. Um, and since then, I've been research, uh, collaborating with him to research patients with different types of inherited retinal degenerations and other retinal diseases um, using this approach in combination with things like optical coherence tomography and other kinds of modalities that allow us to really study what's happening to the retina um, in different types of retinal conditions. Um, both in patients and then longitudinally over time as disease changes. No, I think that's such an exciting area um, in, in ophthalmology in general. I mean, there's not too many organs in the body that uh, are as accessible for viewing, I guess you could say, uh, for imaging um, as, as the eye, right? And, and uh, I think that that's a, an amazing opportunity you know, for the potential for di di following disease progression and treatments uh, over time. That's something that's fairly unique to the eye. I guess it'd probably be in the skin as well, but there's not too many other organs that are, are as accessible. Um, and uh, I like the, I like how you told the story of how we've taken something from, um, I guess, astrophysics and trying to apply that or, or astrobiology uh, and apply that into, uh, into ophthalmology. It's interesting. Um, I actually had a guest on the podcast who was one of the co-creators of OCT was Joel Schumann, um, who kind of was talking about um, how that that technology evolved too. So I always find these these stories interesting. I don't have the background information on these things, but it's always interesting to see how these technologies uh, they come to light. Um, so as far as research goes, are you is your research right now heavily focused on on using these imaging tools, or or where does your research group uh, focus its efforts right now? Yeah, that's right. So I've been fortunate to work with Dr. Vorda, uh, as well as other experts in the field, Joe Carroll at Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, and other science, you know, scientists at a limited number of locations that have access to the same kind of technology. Um, we're working together to try and develop these images into outcome measures that can, as you mentioned before, monitor what's happening to the photoreceptors during disease progression in patients with a number of different inherited retinal degenerations, and ideally develop it to the point that it can be used to monitor whether a treatment is safe and effective. So we are working with, uh, first we've been, you know, for the last 15 years, we've been publishing papers sort of describing what the retina looks like in patients with different kinds of inherited retinal degenerations. Um, and then going forward, we're really working with as I mentioned, only that this type of technology is not available in most retina clinics. It's a research tool that is available at a limited number of academic centers. So we've been working with other people who have access to the same technology at centers around the world um, that also see patients with inherited retinal degenerations. And so the number becomes 
locations is relatively small, um, but we're hoping to apply this technology to study of patients with inherited retinal diseases in multi-center longitudinal trials. Um, toward that end, we've been working with the Foundation Fighting Blindness to create a consortium of clinical centers around the world that have expertise in inherited retinal degenerative conditions. Um, and some of those centers also have access to the same kind of technology that we're discussing. So we're working together with them collaboratively to try and get you know, greater numbers of patients who have the same kinds of problems and greater access um, to the technology to apply those together with uh, the hope that we can better understand how different genetic mutations cause photoreceptors uh, not to work and not to survive. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the FFB, and obviously we, we want to go um, that direction given your association, but also given what the organization has done. Like I think you've been around for about about 50 years, give or take, uh, as an organization, and is certainly um, known worldwide uh, among researchers and patients for, for the work that's being done. How did you get involved with the FFB, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. All of that is true. So the Foundation Finding Blindness is the leading non-governmental source of support of research in inherited retinal degenerations. And um, it certainly it existed long before I became involved, but I uh, started working uh, on my, during my faculty career in the year 2000 with Dr. Matt LaVale, who is a basic scientist um, at UCSF, who had been you know, involved with the study of inherited retinal degenerations throughout his career. And he had been supported by the Foundation Finding Blindness through a center grant to, the, to UCSF. Um, so I started working with him and through, you know, got connected with Foundation Finding Blindness really through him. Um, and since that time, I've been really fortunate to be involved with Foundation Finding Blindness, both as a, a recipient of support through career development awards and other different you know, kinds of funding mechanisms. Um, and then now even more recently to serve in a leadership role um, as the chair of their scientific advisory board, and then also to sort of create work with them to launch this consortium of centers um, with the goal that we can more effectively uh, study inherited retinal degenerations, which as you are aware are not very common um, in multiple centers around the country and around the world. No, that's that's fair. Now, I mean, you're highlighting how it's they're not very common. Um, the, the the focus of what the FFB is um, is funding, I'm assuming, is more retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, Stargardt's, uh, a, a, a funding a lot of macular degeneration as well. They yeah. are. Their their mission is to um, develop treatments and cures for inherited retinal degenerations, and that includes, as you mentioned, all the diseases you stated. Retinitis pigmentosa, Conrad dystrophy, Usher syndrome, Stargardt disease, Best disease, some forms of pattern dystrophy, coroideremia, um, Bardet Beetle syndrome. There's a number of uncommon conditions that all cause progressive death of the photoreceptors due to genetic mutations. Um, in, included in that is a more common condition called age-related macular degeneration, which also causes the photoreceptors not to survive and is an inherited condition. Um, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has dedicated a significant amount of research support to the understanding of the dry form of age-related macular degeneration, given that there are relatively effective treatments for the wet form that have been developed in recent years. So most um, of the Foundation's mission is really to study genetic conditions that cause photoreceptors to degenerate, which includes dry age-related macular degeneration. No, and that's and that's fair. I mean, there's I know there's a there's a lot going on. There's a lot of companies that have popped up 
I don't need to start, you know, plugging any of those companies necessarily, but um, in this space for um, for geographic atrophy, right? And um, but the foundation's role when it comes to AMD research is really focused on looking at the genetic underpinnings. Is that what the type of research you're funding for the most part? Well, that's part of it. Um, yes, understanding the genetic underpinnings, which are complex, much more complicated than our, is the case in other inherited retinal degenerations, but more so to understand the mechanisms of photoreceptor death, which are common to not only dry age-related macular degeneration, which is a relatively common condition, um, but also diseases like Stargardt disease, Best disease, other kinds of diseases that affect the macula also are, are affected by death of the photoreceptors over time. So the thought is that by working, you know, supporting research to develop treatments and um, better understanding of the mechanisms of degeneration in age-related macular degeneration that may be relevant and have applicability to some of the less common inherited retinal degenerations as well. And, and that makes, makes sense. So I know the, the foundation has funded a ton of work over time. Um, is there anything that, uh, and maybe you can't even talk about it now, I don't, I don't know, but is there anything that the foundation is focusing on, uh, you know, in the in now or in the, in the years ahead um, in terms of a, a research focus or a funding focus um, that you find particularly exciting or particularly promising or, uh, you know, a disease specific, anyth anything to give people a clue of, you know, we can all look and see what the foundation has funded and, and uh, in the past. I'm just curious about, you know, what does the next couple of years of, of research uh, funding look like? And if, if you can't comment on that, maybe just comment on what uh, some of the emerging research that you find, you know, particularly promising or exciting. Great. Yeah, and those are all, all great questions. One of the things I find most rewarding about being a researcher in the inherited retinal degenerations field is that it is a very exciting, constantly evolving field, uh, and that there really are incredible developments happening every year that make it so exciting. Um, the Foundation Funding Blindness supports research in a whole portfolio of different areas, and that range is all the way from very early lab-based translational research to understand mechanisms of disease that then give us ideas about things that might be good targets for treatments, all the way through early uh, early stage clinical trials, uh, first in animal models of degeneration and then in patients to determine whether treatments are going to be safe, um, in addition to sort of development of delivery models that will allow a treatment to be delivered over the course of the lifetime of a patient, uh, which is the course of time that patients are affected with these diseases. Um, subsequently, there's research underway to look at natural history studies to see how different genetic mutations cause photoreceptors to degenerate over time. And then finally, to support um, early stage treatment trials to see if treatments are going to be safe and effective. Eventually, the Foundation Fighting Blindness um, works in partnership with entities that will take products through the FDA approval process and through to commercialization. So um, that would involve a phase three study and even a phase four study after marketing. But um, there is a whole portfolio of different kinds of um, projects that are, are very promising. There's gene augmentation for patients with um, inherited retinal degenerations that cause a protein not to be expressed. So th the best example of that is gene augmentation for retinitis, for retinitis pigmentosis due to mutations in the RPE65 gene. The specific thing that's kind of special about that gene, that form of retinal degeneration, although it's not very common at all, 
is that the gene is expressed specifically not in the foot receptors, but in the underlying RPE cells. And so by uh, targeting the RPE cells with gene augmentation, um, the foot receptors are, are still sort of present, but missing an important protein. And so not able to see, but still um, around. So if you can replace the missing protein, the RPE65 protein, uh, those foot receptors um, have gain the ability to see. And so that was a really terrific success that was uh, supported by Foundation Finding Blindness Research for many years before it got to the point of being in clinical trials, um, where in partnership with companies, including Spark Therapeutics, subsequently purchased by Roche, at Roche um, it went to commercialization. And so that was the first uh, FDA-approved gene replacement therapy in all medicine, um, which was approved in 2017. And that was really exciting. Um, the success of that has really led to a number of different um, organizations or entities trying to develop similar approaches where genes that are not being expressed can be delivered through viral vector approaches. So there's clinical trials underway for patients with different forms of autosomal recessive retinal degeneration where the missing gene is being replaced. Then there are, for people who have mutations in genes that are too big to be delivered using the standard adeno-associated viral vector that was used successfully to deliver RB65, we have to think about other more creative approaches. And so some of those creative approaches involve things like antisense oligonucleotides, which are little bits of RNA that allow a genetic mutation to be skipped over so that a more normal protein is produced. Um, different ways of delivering the DNA using um, either dual vectors or using different types of uh, viral carrying machinery <laughs> to try and um, deliver bigger genes. Um, gene editing using uh, an approach called CRISPR where you deliver uh, sort of a scissors and glue to identify a particular mutation, cut out the mutation, fix the genetic mutation so that a normal sequence is around and then a normal protein can be produced. So that's also very exciting and uh, led to the Nobel Prize being award to the awarded to the scientists that discovered it uh, in the year 2020. And then for big genes uh, that, or for autosomal dominant diseases where an, a genetic mutation causes an abnormal protein to be produced, there are different kinds of approaches that like CRISPR and other things like ribozymes and different kinds of things that can eliminate an abnormal protein um, and or um, overwhelm it with more normal protein. There's different kinds of approaches that are gene specific in their nature. Um, then there's gene non-specific genes, sort of pan-genetic or uh, non-gene specific therapies that might have applicability to people no matter what their genetic mutation is. And these are things like uh, delivery of neurotrophic factors or anti-apoptotic factors that are meant to just keep the cells alive longer. Some of them are antioxidant treatments that are being investigated. Um, and then for people who have more advanced stages of disease, um, it, it, some of the more promising approaches to try and bring some vision back include things like uh, optogenetics, where uh, gene therapy is used to deliver a protein that other organisms besides people use to sense light. So it could be from algae, or it could be uh, also from kinds of cone, cone options that people use um, to be delivered to inner retinal cells that don't usually respond to light to make them light sensitive after the photoreceptors have gone away. So some very early success from that type of research uh, was reported earlier in 2021, which makes us believe that that's a, a viable approach. Um, there's also the prosthetics where chips are used to deliver electrical impulses to the inner retinal cells that um, 
persist after the photoreceptors have gone away. Um, and then stem cells to either deliver growth factors uh, to cells and keep them alive longer, or someday perhaps to replace uh, photoreceptors that have gone away. Uh, the challenge has been that getting the stem cells to turn into photoreceptors and getting those new stem cell, those new stem cell derived photoreceptors to connect with the inner retinal cells such that they make a meaningful connection with the brain that can send information to the brain that can be interpreted. So there's sort of a whole big you know, portfolio of different approaches, depending on which type of inherited retinal degeneration a patient has and at which stage of disease and the patient is, is being affected. So there's two, two things that come out of everything you just said there for me. Uh, one, um, I think it's a dangerous question to ask you what you're excited about because you seem to be very, very excited about a lot of these things. That's right. So, but no, but which is, which is, you know, which really brings the second point up is that, um, you know, I, I am somebody who has a, a visual impairment due to retinitis pigmentosa. And just knowing that, you know, there's not all your eggs are in one basket, so to speak, right? We're talking about uh, optogenetics and gene uh, therapy, stem cell therapies, um, you know, using technologies like, you know, we have, we knew a lot of stuff with the Argus too. And now, now we're going to cortical mm-hmm. uh, implants and, and a number of other things. There's just a lot going on in this space. We're trying to tackle these diseases from multiple angles and what I think that uh, is encouraging for anybody who might be a patient or um, you know, a family or friend of a patient is that uh, it kind of goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, how the eye being very accessible, mm-hmm. a lot of these things are coming together very quickly in ophthalmology before any other subspecialty, right? Because Absolutely. of how accessible the eye is and, and the imaging that you're alluding to earlier, um, you know, we can image to see how these therapies are affecting the eye and, and, uh, and stuff over time. So um, I have a, a question that you, it's hard to escape over the last two years, but I'm just curious how COVID has impacted um, either your research or in the clinic um, and as well as just the, you know, the, uh, the workings of the, of the foundation. Yeah, that's a great question. The, the, the research has continued, but it certainly has been more challenging because um, initially, you know, when, when the whole country was kind of shut down, a lot of research was put on hold, uh, except for the most uh, critical life-saving kind of COVID-related research. Uh, a lot of people were not allowed to go into their labs. A lot of people were forced to work from home, but a lot of research did continue anyway. And, and some of the research um, that people had been doing for other, you know, to develop delivery of genes like with adeno-associated viral vectors was used to, to try and work um, to develop better treatments for COVID, in fact. So, so certainly some um, research was turned to try and better understand and then develop treatments for, for this pandemic, which um, all of us are being affected by to this very day. Um, fortunately, over time, things began to be a little bit more uh permissive to the point that we were closer to normal, but I will say that sure, sure, definitely and completely, it is true that um, the clinical research has, has taken a bit of a hit in that there's been times when things are really on hold and patients were really not eager or not willing even to come in for research study visits. It was really limited to life-saving kinds of emergencies were all that people were seeing for a little while. And there was really not much clinical research going on for a couple of months, several months in 2020. Um, but since that time, people have become, you know, many people have become vaccinated, which has um, reduced the risk of 
contracting COVID or getting very sick from it. Um, and so that has enabled us to resume a lot of the research, um, including not only natural history studies um, and studies to better understand how diseases affect the retina, but also treatment trials. So treatment trials continue on, and we're still working towards development of therapies. Um, we certainly participate in a number of clinical trials that um, were much more challenging during COVID. Um, but fortunately, people are getting vaccinated and we're, uh, you know, even in light of things like Omicron and new surges, we're still um, continuing to pursue the research uh, the best of our very, very best of our ability. No, and, and, that, and that's great, right? Like I, I imagine it was was tough, especially anybody who was you know mid study of any kind yeah. uh, when when this all kind of uh, came crashing down. But um, so the foundation, we, we talked a little bit about the types of um, the types of research that the foundation funds and across the the spectrum from basic science right through to uh, clinical trials and beyond. Can you just talk a little bit about the foundation's funding and and just as a wrap up, maybe uh, how people can can get involved because I do know that there's a number of events in the past the foundation um, has run as, as fundraising events, um, but I don't know you know in light of COVID if that you know fundraising has been impacted um, and uh, just in general anybody listening to this how they can get involved whether it be in, in fundraising or in uh, in some other way. Yeah, so wonderful questions all. So yeah, it's true that one of the real wonderful and important um, functions that the Foundation Fighting Blindness provides for patients is, as we said, they're really uncommon diseases. So a lot of times a patient will be affected and they won't know anybody else who has the same problem. And so it's been very wonderful in the past where for, for foundation fighting blindness events to kind of bring the community together such that people realize they're not the only people with these diseases and that there are other people they can talk to about the experience and what kinds of approaches have been helpful for them. So the in-person um, fundraising is really uh, wonderful and, and has contributed a lot to the field um, in terms of just supporting patients. So that's been a lot more challenging during COVID. And so uh, the foundation has become much more creative in terms of finding ways to bring people together virtually uh, and continue to pursue the really critical fundraising work that they do. So they've developed things that are virtual, uh, oftentimes on platforms, kind of like the one we're using right now with Zoom or other sorts of approaches um, to try and bring people together in a virtual way. They've had uh, events like a thing called Help From Home, where they had, it was actually very, very fun events where they brought in entertainers and people can log on to Zoom and have silent auctions and connect virtually. Um, in addition, one of their signature fundraising events is the Vision Walk, where people, you know, traditionally can get together outdoors and take a walk and raise uh, money in teams to support the research. And they have had virtual Vision Walks all over the country where you still get together on Zoom and take a walk in your neighborhood and get people to support you in that walk. Um, but there's no big gathering in one place to try and reduce the risk of COVID. So I would say the foundation has been really, really creative in trying to continue to ensure that this research does not stop because it's so, so critical to continue to pursue the work um, and still to reunite and to unite and bring together people um, who are similarly affected by these diseases. Oh, and that's great. So people now who are listening to this and say, Hey, I want to, I want to know more about this or I want to get involved. Where do they go online to get more information? Yeah, fightingblindness.org is the website for the Foundation Fighting Blindness, where you can learn all about the different kinds of research that's underway. I send patients there every single day that I'm in clinic. Um, they can connect you with people who have 
who are similarly affected, they can tell you how to get involved, how to find a chapter in your area, how to support research, and how to participate in trials. So there's, and, and in fact, if you haven't yet had genetic testing, there's a research database called My Retina Tracker that can allow you to directly contribute to our understanding of these diseases and sometimes to get genetic testing as well um, in partnership with a physician that um, can enter your information into, into the website and tell you more about it. Excellent. No. Well, listen, uh, I've taken a lot of your time today. I do appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and sharing your, um, you know, all this information, but more importantly, and your enthusiasm. I, you clearly, you clearly love what you do and, uh, uh, and are driven and we're doing this recording over the Christmas holidays. So you must really love what you do. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's uh, absolutely true. That is true. And I, I love it when people want to hear more about um, things that I'm excited about. So thanks for reaching out. Oh, listen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining. All right. Have a wonderful day. Take care. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>